Hey, I'm Dr. Laura Berman, a sex and relationship therapist. And for the past three decades, I've been helping people learn how to love and be loved better. That's what we're doing here on The Language of Love, where I get to answer calls and emails from people just like you. My goal with The Language of Love is to help you discover more meaningful, emotional, and physical intimacy, and to help you build more awareness of how precious and sacred your sexuality really is. Be sure to email me or reach out with your very own love-sex relationship questions, and I might just answer them live on the air. It's time we all become fluent in the language of love. I am so excited to have Justin Baldoni with us for this week's language of love. He's an American actor, a filmmaker, an author, and a podcast host. He's definitely known for portraying Rafael Solano on the uh, romantic dramedy Jane the Virgin. Um, He's also a director. He directed the film Five Feet Apart and Clouds. And he is the author of Man Enough, Undefining My Masculinity is the subtitle. And it is coming out in paperback on May 3rd. So I read Man Enough, Undefining My Masculinity. And I know the Paperback comes out May 3rd, which is really exciting. Yeah. Um, I loved it. And I, and one of the things I loved most about it is that the whole tone and all the way through, you're like, I'm still figuring this shit out. I I'm, still am. Yeah. Right. Many of us feel like we have to kind of be an expert in order to share but my whole premise is that we are always healing, learning, and teaching if we are, in fact, teachers, guides, healers, whatever, and that it's an ongoing process. And so I really appreciate, since an undertone and an undercurrent of the whole book is about it's okay to be vulnerable, right? From the start, you're like, I'm still figuring this shit out. I'm no expert. I'm in the middle of this journey, but I'll share with you mm. what I figured out so far. Yeah. Thank thank you. First of all, thank you for reading it. I tried to, in the writing of the book, uh, model what I was, uh, I guess, preaching, if you will. I think us men learn by modeling. You know, monkey see, monkey do. It was also the only way that I could write the book because it's deeply personal. Yeah, it is really personal. And you share a lot of, which I think obviously is the point because, you know, and we'll talk about this in a second, this idea of sort of the divine masculinity versus what many of us or many people in society call toxic masculinity. I hate that term anyway, because it is disparaging, but, but we're seeing a lot of it in the world right now, sort of this unconscious masculinity and a lot of it, which you describe very personally about your own upbringing in lots of different contexts is around sort of these scripts that we ascribe to and get sucked into because mm-hmm. there's no other detour coming in. There's no other change in trajectory. There's no, there's there, you know, for you, there wasn't a man enough book or a Justin Baldoni or a teacher or a guide that was saying, no, like these insecurities you're having are normal. And this lack of information you feel, you're not going to get it from these sources, but here's where you can get it. Exactly. And and I know you are planning, which I think is so great. You are planning to write a book for middle schoolers, which I just finished. I just finished uh, two weeks ago. I turned it in and uh, it's coming out this fall, which I'm really, I'm really proud of this one. I think this is this one's really needed. And, and in many ways, it goes deeper than man enough because in the year and a half in between the two, I went deeper myself and I've done a lot more healing. You have. What has so, changed for you over the past couple of years? And what I mean, we've all gone a lot deeper over the past couple of years, for sure, with all this shit happening in the world. But what would you say has evolved over the past couple mm. of years since writing the book? Well, I mean, I wrote Man Enough between March and November of the pandemic, the first year. And so much has changed. I feel like it's hard being an author because you, and I write this in the book, you can't take it back and kind of wish I could have a do-over and write it again. What would you do differently? I think I would talk more and focus more on healing. You know, it's really tricky writing a book about masculinity in today's climate because the word is polarizing. 
It is. You don't even have to say toxic masculinity for you half of for half. Of, you just say masculinity, and and immediately it's almost as if half of the population, in particular men, feel like they're under attack. And as a licensed therapist, you know that those who feel like they're under attack have a lot of healing to do because they're feeling vulnerable just by existing. Yeah. Right. So they're putting on their armor and their shells. And it's also become so polarized and weaponized politically, ideologically. So I feel like I have so much more compassion for the men that are disagreeable. And I think that's one thing that if I had to do over, I would go deeper into is really my healing journey and healing in general and the healing that I think we need collectively. Yeah. This understanding that, and I talk about this in the book, but just focusing on just how I believe good we are yeah. as men. And I talk about that in the book, but it's, but the problem is, you know, you have so much to tackle. This idea of the patriarchy is so complex and layered, but the book can't be about that. Mm -hmm. And so I try to simplify it to make it about me and what my journey has been. Cause I don't want to be a teacher. I'm a student. So anyways, I, it's been a lot, but what, one thing I did go far deeper into for the middle grade book is sex. Oh, good. I'm so um, excited about that. And I want to talk to you about that, obviously, because it's one of my favorite topics, but also because you speak so beautifully about it in the book and it's something so huge for middle schoolers. But I agree with you completely what you're saying right now, because as a mom of three boys, it has broken my heart. Before I got pregnant with my first son and certainly discovering my third son was a son, I had always imagined having girls and teaching them to be these empowered feminine powerhouses and yeah. to own themselves and all the things that I know women struggle with. And I, and with my boys, you know, when I found out I was pregnant with my third boy, I was like, okay, obviously God wants me to raise three men who honor themselves and know how to honor everyone, including women. And of course, as soon as I, it was clear for each one that he was heterosexual, I felt like it was my job to teach them how to please a woman and where the clitoris is. I mean, that's something I could do. For Damn, mind, right? good for you. <laughs> Jeez. Well, it's amazing because then they don't have to try to learn through porn. Right. And I've talked to them and we're going to talk about porn, you and I, but I've talked to them a lot about porn. But International Women's Day, right, I ended up posting a video not about empowering women, but like, let's not bash men. We don't have to bash men to empower women. And I noticed like what every year on International Women's Day or when it was women's because it's all month in school and my kids have all gone to progressive schools where there's a lot of this. And my youngest said to me, leading up to Women's Day, he's like, oh, crap, it's International Women's Month. And I was like, well, what's wrong with that? Oh, I'm going to be bashed all month. I'm going to hear about how much I suck all month. Everything out of my mouth I'm going to be beaten up for. And like, he was mm. dreading it. Oh, and it broke that's so my sad. Heart. It broke my heart. And I was like, you should not, <sighs> one does not preclude the other. Defeats the purpose. It defeats the purpose. And I think if there's anything toxic, it's toxic anti-masculinity, right? Because we don't know. And I get we have to throw the baby out. Feels like when the pendulum is swinging far to the one direction in order to claim those rights that women haven't had for so long, sometimes we get really extreme. But- one of the things that I love, and I think you could write another book all about the healing. Oh, no, I, I need to take a break from writing books. My wife's like, no more books. It's oh, such an anxiety inducing thing for me. And because I'm in the process, I, like you said earlier, it's heal, learn, teach. Yeah. Eventually, I probably will, yeah. but I'm going to take a little break right now yeah. and just heal. Please continue. No, no, no. But I'm saying you will have plenty to say there. But what you're doing in Man Enough is lifting up your dress, so to speak. You know, you're saying, look, here I am, this heartthrob kind of when you think about what sexy, attractive, successful by society's standards, masculinity looks like it's I on the outside am that right like I ha I'm successful in my acting career I have a gorgeous wife I have beautiful children I am hot I know you're not saying all this I'm saying this for you and yet yeah I totally don't feel like I'm enough a lot of the time and I oh, yeah. struggle with self-worth and body image I mean you were so honest 
about your body image issues, which I think we can't do enough people who look have perfect bodies. We assume, oh, once I if I were to have a perfect body, I would feel good about myself. But the truth is, if you don't feel good about yourself, you never feel good about yourself, even with a perfect body. And the perfect body is coming from a place of scarcity and pain. And I think that was one of the things. So let's just talk about body image for a second, because I know you spent a lot of time there and, you know, about the Adonis complex and about for everything from penis size and the way porn affected that your self-concept to my wife just came in. Say hi. Hi. At some point, I want to get the two of you on together. I love your relationship. Oh, she's incredible. She's far more interesting than I am. (laughs) But the body image piece from penis size to abs and, and how you talk about, which I'm sure you wrote about in the middle school boy book, but like in the locker room, how it starts so early comparing yourself. And then you're first teased because your body isn't developed enough. When you make it really developed and have that six pack abs, everybody's heckling you for being yeah, too And you're pleased. Yeah. yeah. Because you make them feel insecure. It's the conundrum of the patriarchy. It ties into everything. I mean, just this idea of being a certain way, looking like a certain way. If I would only have that body, then I would feel good or enough. That applies to everything in yeah. this system. That's the illusion. It's the pyramid scheme of the patriarchy, if you will, is this illusion that like, if I just have that, or if I just get that, or if I just look like that, then I will be enough. And enoughness is tied to happiness, right? Enoughness yeah. is contentment, which is tied to, and, and, and that's just all a myth. It's all, none of it's real. It's all put in place to make us feel like we aren't enough so that we can buy something mm-hmm. so that we can, you know, so that someone can sell us an idea of something. So we're profiting off of our not enoughness. And that's really the way the system is designed to work. Yeah. And for women um, as well. Well, no, well, no, especially for women, yeah. because men are men are the ones who created the system. We are, we created the system. And women aren't in the positions of power that create the system. Yeah. So but therefore men are susceptible to the system too, which is what I think is so powerful about what you're saying. I thought it was really cute. You know, you were, oh, yeah. you were blaming it on that Brazilian model that I guess it was in the eighties or seven, you know, that, yeah, that guy. Tom. Who did the Calvin Klein, the first big image of the guy in his yeah. underwear? The, yeah, he's the pole, the pole vaulter. That's well, I mean, that's what men that were my dad's age were saying. That's when they became aware of their bodies. Yeah, in and America, of course, we've been doing yeah. that for women have been susceptible to those billboard images and magazine images forever. But it was around that time that male images started to come out that were airbrushed and superhuman and setting a different standard. And that's only part, obviously, of the body image issues that guys have. But you're right that that probably was the beginning of men starting to be like, oh, that's what I'm supposed to look like. Of course. How do you increase consumerism among men by making them feel like they need something? Yeah. They don't have enough. So, of course, if they think that that's the ideal image of a man and women want that, then men want to be that. Therefore, then they'll buy the underwear. Yeah. And then they'll be happy, which of course they are. Right. Which then, of course, we're not. Exactly. Yeah. Well, let's talk about porn. Laura, we can talk about whatever you want to talk about. (laughs) (laughs) Because I loved, I have not seen a lot of men who aren't like clinicians treating this. A lot of men who are really honest about that cycle, that messed up cycle that is so easy to slip into of dopamine feeding rushes and using porn as a distraction when you're anxious, when you're bored, when you're hungry, when you can't go to sleep, you know, it starts to become the the panacea, the treatment for everything, like a knee jerk reaction. And then it feeds on itself. And I love, you really do get into that with how it affects the neural pathways. And and this is what I've said to my boys and their friends. I remember them asking me around 12, one was 11, one was 12, and they know I have a line of sexual aids and devices. And they said, hey, can you give us uh, one for men? And I said, well, I will happily give you one for men, but only if you don't use it with porn. You have to use it with fantasy. Laura, how cool is that? <laughs> like, I hope to be as cool of a parent as you that my kids will like ask me for talk sex, about that. I mean, sex toy. <laughs> kids literally asked you for a sex toy. That's pretty mind blowing. And how open you must be 
with them. I am uh, very open. And they have all said that while it was mortifying when they were young, as they reached their later teen years, and my oldest is 25, it definitely has come in handy. But what mm. I thought was so interesting, and it really shocked me, is I said, I'll give it to you if you use it with fantasy. And it was the two of them with like a couple of their friends. And they looked at me like I was speaking gibber, like fantasy. What do you mean? Yeah. It's like, well, you use fantasy, you know, your imagination. And they were like looking at me blankly. And I was like, okay, I had to like explain to them the process. What your imagination is. Yes. Of sexual imagination, right? Like, oh, so you see a hot girl or even if you saw something on porn before and you reimagine it, you're using your imagination to play out a movie in your head that is arousing. I had to explain to them how to self-stimulate without porn because these Mm. boys are just having it, especially since Pornhub. It's just. Which hopefully is on its way to be taken down also. I hope so. I follow a few accounts that are that are actively trying to take it down just based on the amount of rapes and sexual assaults that they post. It's so crazy. And they are, you know, it used to be. And I know you write about this. You know, when you were a kid, you were finding if you were lucky, somebody's father's playboys or magazines. You know, when I was a kid, it was finding the playboys or the joy of sex, that book that every couple seemed to have. You know, you had, had, you had to, to go s- out of your way. Yes. You had to go out of your way to find yes. like, you know, and when I was your, your kids, you know, 10, 12, 13, there was a family computer. Yeah. One, you know, and I'm 38 now. So we didn't have, I can't imagine having access no. at 10, 12 years old on my phone. And keep in mind, a family computer with dial-up internet yeah. only gave you an image a minute. Yeah. So it was the anticipation was almost as much as anything else. And now we're just on a dopamine overload, but it's not just porn. It's the entire tension economy is designed to trigger a dopamine fix and need to keep us scrolling in every area. Yeah. Porn is just one of the ways to get your fix. I mean, I would argue that TikTok and Instagram and all of these things, and even our news feeds these days and actual news is it's all the same thing. What, what's the story? What am I going to get next? Yes. You You know, like a minute attention span. Well, you have no, now it's less. What's it now? Five to eight seconds. They're saying, and we're also doing that the same thing with dating. I mean, it's all random reward theory, as you know, all designed to keep us fixated on something, wondering what's next, anticipating what's next. Then it comes and you know that there might be something better. So you keep looking and we never stop. And so our brains never have a chance to actually settle in and feel the things that we need to feel because all those neural pathways are starting so young. Yeah. They're starting so young. They are. And I know that you write about how your first exposure to porn was at age 10, which is that in your day, that was pretty early. That's that's now average. Yeah, it's now average. And Even when my oldest, my 25-year-old, we had this, it was before smartphones, and I could outlaw porn and explain to him why. With my younger ones, I couldn't, unless I put them on a bubble on a mountaintop. I was not, you know, even if I took their phones away, they were going to be looking at someone else's smartphone, right? So it was less about trying to shield them from that and more trying to educate them about the implications of it, you know, and how to... And the reality versus not reality, because you're right that, you know, when you write about this, that so many men get, I've always said this is sex, that porn is the worst sex educator there is. I mean, everything about it is wrong when it comes to learning education. Yeah. When it comes to what to expect about what genitals look like, what men and women look like, what turns them on, what is healthy sexuality, what the normal sexual response, I mean, all of it. Yeah. is false. I couldn't agree more. And I love the message that you give to women. And I know that this book is for men, but it's also for women because first of all, women buy and read more books. Than more men. women have bought the book also. And then they read it and they, and they give it to men in their life. Yeah. But I love how you say, because I say this to women all the time, but it, I think it means more coming from you that if your partner is watching porn or can't seem to stop watching porn. It's not because of a deficiency in you. Yeah, that was important. That was really important for me. In hetero relationships, it's not about the woman or her attractiveness or her 
inability to perform or if there's some deficiency in her. The majority of the time, the vast majority of the time, it's a man uh, struggling with something he doesn't even know he's struggling with because we've normalized it to such this, the porn dynamic is so strange because you have large groups of men who will talk about it, who will joke about like something they saw on, you know, Pornhub or something because it's so normalized. So they've normalized it kind of like the dad bod has been yeah. normalized, right? Yeah. From the male gaze, from the, that, that patriarchal lens, it's normalized. And then you have a whole nother group of men who are secret about secretive about it and hide it because there's so much shame around it. Generally, the religious population, and as we know, is the one really creating the demand for the porn right. industry because we're dealing with so much repression and none of it is working. None of it's accurate. And because, you know, and then now you have, you have young girls watching porn because they think that's how they have to perform. I know that breaks my heart. So you almost are conditioning young boys and girls to not like consent is no longer a real thing. You have aggressive. I mean, we know that the majority of porn is very aggressive. Mm -hmm. You know, we're talking borderline like sexual assault yeah. and uh, granted that that's changing. And I know there are female movements to change some of these things. I would argue that there should be an age limit on it, just like there is in uh, the stores when you would want to go into to buy a magazine. I just, you know, our brains, our brains aren't developed enough to be able to watch these things and to be able to see these images because our brains are built in such a way that these images are meant to help us procreate. Yeah. And so I, when we're that young, ugh. we're just like, it's just basically like giving us heroin. Yeah. The only you know, way that I got through to my boys is because, you know, of course, what the hell do I know? I'm grown up and they're infallible and immortal at that age. Right. Yes. But the yes, only yeah. thing that got them was the truth. When I said to them, look, this actually, if you are consistently using porn to reach arousal and orgasm, you are accidentally training your body in a way where it's going to be hard to reach arousal and orgasm with a real woman. Good way to go, Laura. Way to they scare like, them. Oh. There's data that supports that. Yeah. No, there's data that supports that. And so you're not, you're not lying to them. No. It's, it's very, very true. I didn't the tell other them part, they would grow hair on their palms or anything like that. I told them. To I know. <laughs> that's what, I think that's what, I think that's what my dad told me. It was like, I don't even know where the hell that came from. <laughs> Uh, so and the other thing that no one really talks about, especially for young boys, is that when we're looking at images on computers, sexual images, whatever, our brain is associating those images with things, yes. not with people. Yeah, with objects. So then therefore, the thing that we are training our brains, that we're developing our brains as we're watching porn, especially when we're really young, is we're training our brains to see if they're women that they're looking at, they're looking at women as objects. Yeah. I wonder why people. that is. I thought that was interesting too. And you mentioned, you wrote about this in your book, that study that showed that when the part of the brain that lights up when men watch porn or anyone watches porn is the part that perceives objects, not people. And I wonder why that is. Is it because it's a- Well, I think it's not just porn. I think it's in general watching things. Uh, I think I that's, I, there's a good chance that that study could have been geared towards porn. But I think that if you would, I think that if I were looking at you yeah. through an MRI right now- I'd be an object. You'd be an object because you're in a computer, right? Yeah, I and, I th and I don't think our brains are able to tell the difference between something yeah. that a screen- It's like 2D versus Exactly, 3D. exactly. So I think that's, part of it. But again, you're still training yourself. And if you train yourself to, you know, I try to tell guys, if you train yourself to bench press a certain way and you're bench pressing wrong your whole life, it's going to be very hard to untrain that. When you learn how to run, if you don't learn how to run with the proper mechanics, then you're going to run like that the majority of your life. Then you have to spend years untraining yeah. and unlearning that behavior. So it's very hard to unlearn seeing women as objects and not people. But it's very, I mean, the data is there. You look at, you know, you look at the amount of women who are sexually assaulted and raped, right? The numbers, as we know, are staggering. Well, that only happens when we see a gender as something that isn't human. Yeah, as an object. Yeah. We could never do that. That's why statistics and numbers and even war, right? I know we're, we're watching a war unfold right now and we're seeing these images and, and these companies are profiting off of putting the images of, of bodies, Russian soldiers, or Ukrainians, pe yeah. people that are killed. They're people, they're humans. I know. But we're reducing them to one side or another. And 
seeing these images, it's war porn. It's all the same thing. And we're so, then we're so desensitized to it. And again, the same thing happens with video games. This is why it's a, as I said, it's such, so hard to write a book about this. I could have a whole chapter on the same way that video games affect one's dopamine. Yeah. And look at what we're doing in video games. We're desensitizing ourselves to crime. Right. To violence. To violence and to prostitution. Right? And to- As if us men need to be desensitized anymore to that wow. stuff, right? We're feeding the beast over and over and over and over again. And when reality, like we should be teaching, like we should be having video games and experiences that help our young boys recognize the humanity in themselves and in the world and how they can, you know, let's come up with games that teach us how to be like humans and how to not just be saviors and how to use our our masculine qualities, if we will, to increase happiness and make the world better and to gamify that in some way. Like there's all kinds of things that you can do. I don't think it just has to be the lowest common denominator of our like carnal desires that we develop these video games and porn websites with. Well, if anyone can make that cool and popular, you can, right? Like if one of these I'd... moms come out with a game like that, <laughs> they'd be like, ah, please send it. it to me. I'll invest in it. Let's go. <laughs> I really want to talk to you. And I know you wrote in lots of different contexts in your book about this, about bullying. And one of the things that you were really honest about, which I'm sure you wrote about in your middle school book and is so, so important is how you were so often bullied and almost in response were often the bully as well playing that most of us. And I've seen this with all three of my boys were uh, especially the older two were extremely bullied. And I remember even with the older one, there were incidences where he was bullying, but it was so clear that it was a result of him being bullied. And I also think, I mean, I don't know to what extent you're aware of my story, but my middle son, uh, tragically died. Yeah. Yeah. I am Laura. And I'm so sorry. Thank you. But, but the reason I'm bringing it up now is because I know that the dominoes that fell that ultimately led to him experimenting with a pill he got through Snapchat that was counterfeit fentanyl and killed him was because he was trying to stop the bullying. He kept saying to me, I need to be able to smoke pot. I need to be able to do some drugs, which I wouldn't permit and wouldn't. And I was testing him because he had experimented with cannabis. So I was regularly, spontaneously testing him to make sure he wasn't doing it. So he was trying to negotiate with me, with us and saying, look, I need to do it because the kids are so mean to me and they won't Mm. include me. And the only kids who will hang out with me are the kids that get high, but they won't hang out with me if I don't get high because then they think I'm a narc and So I need to be able to get high. And I would say, no, I refuse to like, I wish I could on one level. Like there's part of me that wants to say, okay, honey, just so you don't have to be in this pain, go get high. But I'm not going to say that because it's not okay because of these assholes who won't be friends with you unless you do drugs. I can't as your mother say yes to that. And so let's try to find you friends in another context, which he just wouldn't do. And also it was the pandemic. But I know that what ultimately led, because he was trying to impress his friends and a girl with this drug dealer and and screenshots of the drug dealer's menu, and I'm going to get this drug and try it. And he was trying to not be bullied. He was trying to be accepted. And just the pain of watching the ways, and, and as a parent, you're, you feel so powerless and you try in all the ways you can to support them and to get the school to support them. But at a certain age, the school even stepping in makes the situation worse. You know, by the time they're in middle school and certainly high school, it's so toxic. And I think it's so beautiful the ways in which you painted these pictures of what was going on inside you when you were being humiliated and bullied and how you were Mm. the bravado that you were trying to put forward and the ways in which you realized in 2020 hindsight that then you moved forward and found a victim to do to them to play the role of the bully so that you could kind of put some salve on that part of you that was bullied and take some toxic power back. So I think that was really, I want to get your perspective on that because I think it's so important. I mean, you just did it just as good as (laughs) as I ever could. I just, my heart just breaks for you as a mother. And I'm so sorry you've, uh, as as I was, you know, getting ready for your interview, I saw, that you had lost your son. And I just, um, I'm so sorry that our, uh, 
our culture and our system in this country has failed you in that way. Yeah. And it, it, it makes me really sad for you. Yeah, thanks. I know what it's like to be that boy. And that's why I'm crying is I know what it's like to, to be that man. And there's so many young boys like your son, like me, that are in so much pain that have nowhere to go because all we want is to be accepted and liked and to feel like we're enough as we are. So there's no matter what you do as a parent, no matter how great of a mom or a dad you are, all we want is to be seen and to be liked and to be loved and to feel like we're good enough. And you know, we have this obsession in the patriarchy, this illusion that if we just hold enough power, then we will feel enough. We'll feel man enough, feel masculine enough. Well, the women will want us. The girls will want us. If you're gay, the guys will want us. Whatever it is, it's like we have this masculine ideal of what we think we need to be. And in every system, in every, whether it's uh, look at sexual assault, we know the majority of men who are sexually assaulting have been hurt. Hurt people hurt people. That's why, you know, again, if I do write another book, it'll be about healing because healed people can heal. And whatever that cycle is, we, if we're not feeling enough, we have to find a way to feel enough. So what do us men do? Knowing that specifically us men need to be in positions of power to feel enough, we get that power by any means necessary. Dog eat dog, whatever we can do, even if it's risking our lives, we will find a way to get that power, to get that hit. Mm-hmm. And I believe it. that's at the root of sexual assault. Yeah, I agree. Men, men who feel powerless, who've been hurt, need to also then inflict hurt. Men who feel like they're not understood by women then need to take control and feel powerful. Right. You know, men who, look at all the men, I mean, boys before the age of eight and 10, the sexual assault and abuse numbers are staggering. I know, it's, it's one in every player on your basketball team. And yet, what happens? They hide it. They don't talk about it, but they end up being the bully. They need to have some control over something in their lives, but it's not just people that have been sexual assaulted. It's everybody. It's me. It's, I just wanted to feel like the other guys. And when I was bullied, I felt powerless. So the quickest way for me to get that hit of power was to exercise my dominance over something else, anything else. That's where the abuse of women comes from. We just want to feel powerful. So you have these little men who want to feel powerful. So they abuse. Look at masculine big men that abuse. You would think in your mind, like, you know, you're big and strong. You don't need to hit a woman. But inside, you're just the little boy who was bullied or sexual assaulted or just never seen Mm -hmm. by the people in your life. And you are just acting that out as a grown human being, doesn't matter how big you are. And this is the conversation that I have with my wife all the time. Half of my insecurities, I have no reason to have them. Yeah. Because they're not present. 10-year-old Justin has them. Well, he's often driving the bus, just like the rest of us. (laughs) He's always driving the bus. But this is it starts with these young boys. So I try, especially in this book that's coming out in October, to walk these young boys through the thought process of bullying, but then even more so like, which again, it makes me emotional. Like we can't lose any more people to suicide. We can't lose any more young people to suicide because they're being bullied or because some boy who wanted to feel popular or powerful convinced her to take a naked picture and then showed everybody and sent it around school. This is the stuff that's happening. It's never happened in the history of our planet before because we've never had the ability to bully virtually. So like explaining then to young boys, especially the damage that can come from bullying and how people are taking their lives and then making sure that if they're a young person reading the book and they're having these suicidal thoughts or being bullied, they have to reach out to somebody, you know, and that's the huge thing is, but for a lot of young people, they don't feel safe enough. Right. Or don't they feel, feel like there's embarrassed. any safety. Or even when I would say to my kids, which I did all the way through, I would explain to them the dynamics of bullying. And I was like, you need to understand that the reason he's speaking to you this way and treating you this way is because he feels horrible about himself. Like exactly. I would explain that to them and they could intellectually understand that. 
But at the same time, they're going in their brains. It's like I remember this therapist and it just oh, it just struck me so deeply and I've never forgotten it. He said, what kids that are being bullied like this? It's the equivalent in their brains and in their neurochemicals as someone in a war zone, because every single day they are going to war. There is no safety and they are going to school every day knowing that they're going to be marginalized, humiliated, bullied. They're like you talk about in the book, trying to just stay so small and invisible and hoping nobody, the bully or whoever doesn't think of you or notice you to pick on you. And of course they do. And then all the bystanders, I mean, that's been my focus is I got reached out to by so many kids who were in school with my son who died afterwards. And if there's anything I can do, please let me know. And I said, what you can do is change the way you behave. When you, you saw my son being humiliated in the halls, you saw him going into, you know, and eating in with the coaches, the football coaches, rather than in the lunchroom because he was so humiliated. And I'm not saying that was your fault, but next time say something, say it's not okay to talk to people like that. So-and-so invite that person to sit at your, just the slightest reaching out by the, all the bystanders who don't of course want to do anything because then they don't want to be in the spotlight of the bully. Right. Once they stand up, that brings it back to who are the boys going to listen to? Yeah. The boys are going to listen to their dads. Yeah, you're right. The boys are going to listen to their dads and the girls will listen to their moms. That's just the way that it is right now. And if the dads are not saying that, the yeah. boys are not going to do that. And what do we know about dads? A lot of them aren't even around. Yeah. This They're so fixated on their work and yeah. providing and, and all of the things that us men are having to figure out and navigate today, which is real, by the way. This is why the patriarchy hurts everybody, especially men. This is why I don't say toxic masculinity. The only thing that's toxic about it is how hurt we all are as men. Yeah. We're hurt and we're hurting people because we're hurt. But if us men are not present and paying attention to our children and to our, especially our young boys and modeling by example, what empathy and compassion looks like, their boys aren't going to have any idea. The only way you can stop bullying is by modeling empathy. Yeah, you're right. So a father has to say, no. We don't talk to other kids that way. Mm-hmm. You don't talk to boys that way. In fact, what we should be doing is when you see somebody, when you see a victim of any sort of oppression, now we got transgender kids yeah. that are recognizing yeah. that who they are at a young age. We have gay kids that are, that are out in the open. And if they're being bullied, you go and you defend that person. Right. You don't have to agree with them. You know, what I'm going to say to my boy is I don't, if you get beat up for standing up for someone who can't, yeah. I'm so proud of you. That's what I want him to do. Don't run from that shit. You, you step up. Because when someone can't defend themselves, somebody's got to step up and defend them. And that's not just fighting. That's just, that's emotional bullying too. We got to like pull ourselves away from this like need and desire to feel like we are liked and enough by other hurting people, by other boys who don't feel like they fit in. So they create this idea of what it means to fit in. That's the problem. And that's what we're doing as adults too. Yeah, we do it to each other as adults as well. It's all the same stuff. We have to learn how to see each other as people, as human beings. You know, when we do that, when we do that at home, when we do that right here in our backyards and our own family systems, that's how you change the world. That's how we start to see each other as one human family. That's, that's when war starts to end. Yeah. It starts in your own house. It starts yeah. in your own school. You got to take a bunch of dads and boys out into the woods, Justin, and get them going. I just, you know, again, and that's where, but that's the thing is the work starts with each of us. Trust me, I've had all those people come to me, like, you know, teach classes and do the, you know, men's programs and stuff. And it's like, I'm still just doing it for myself. You know, we have to individually do the work with the man in the mirror. But most people don't know how to do that. So what would you say, right? Like if you're listening to this, and this is why I was thinking like you need to take them and show them, you're still figuring it out, but you're much further along than your average father, right? Let's just talk about fathers because that's where it stops, right? The fathers, as you were saying, teach the sons and condition the sons. And and obviously 
directly addressing the sons as you have in your middle schooler book is part of it, but it's also about really changing the way that you model for your boys, right? And women can do this to a certain extent, but it has to come from other men. So what would you say, how are you figuring it out? How are you healing enough to be able, what are you doing to be able to sort of do this in your own backyard? It starts with an awareness. It starts with that that feeling that each of us have when our actions are not in alignment with our intentions. When we say something we wish we didn't say, or we do something we wish we didn't do, or we're not in control of our anger or our reactions to something, instead of passing it off as, oh, I'm a man, like that's, I'm allowed to be, I'm allowed to be angry. Like, because that's one of the two emotions I'm allowed to feel. Right. right? <laughs> it's like, hold on, where's this coming from? Or that person's upset at me. Maybe I shouldn't gaslight them and make them think that they're crazy so that I feel powerful and I don't feel bad about what I did. Maybe they're saying something real that I need to look at. It's an awareness of our behavior and how it's affecting other people, not just ourselves. Mm-hmm. It's checking in and wondering like, huh, why am I not feeling happy today? Or For most men, I would say, who don't even recognize or realize they suffer from anxiety. And I would argue that most men do. They just don't know it. It's, oh man, why is my my chest tight? tight? Why is my chest tight? Oh, I can't take a deep breath. And then they just move on with their lives. Like, no, no, maybe there's something going on there. 38 years old. I didn't know I had anxiety until I was 35. And I'm fairly progressive in terms of my like emotional, you know, intelligence. So, uh, we all are suffering and we're not realizing it. So healing starts in the same way that the program, the AA starts, which is recognizing that you are powerless over something, recognizing that, that there is something out of your control that you need help with. It's not saying I'm broken and I'm screwed up and I'm fucked up and I'm not lovable and I'm not all of these things because deep down, I think all of us men, humans are doing that anyways because of the way that society and the system is set up to make us feel like we're terrible. It's just looking at it and saying, I want to be better. I want to feel happier. I want more joy in my life. I want a better relationship. I want to make my kids feel loved. I want my wife or my partner to feel loved. I just want to be a better person. That's where healing begins. I think you're right. And then have you found, I'm sure you've tried and worked with all sorts of healers and clinicians and everybody's different, but have you found in terms of this issue of really showing up as your authentic self and fostering empathy that starts with for yourself. And then you can start to model for others and for your children. I'm just curious. I know it's not a one size fits all approach, but is there a kind of therapy or treatment or healing that you have found particularly helpful? I mean, I, I've done a lot of different types of healing work and therapy work. I would say the most frustrating and beneficial for me has been somatic therapy. Me too. <laughs> and to anyone who doesn't know what somatic therapy is, I mean, it's just essentially getting in touch with your body and where your mm-hmm. feelings live in your body. As a former athlete, I suffer from a lot of muscle injuries when I am explosive, as an example. I, that's where I've held my stress mm-hmm. is in my connective tissues. And I think that uh, the body keeps the score, yeah. uh, as you know. And a lot of us hold our emotions and stress in our bodies. A lot of men, I believe, we hold our anxiety and our stress in our lower back, in our mid back. That's why we have, you know, that's why our backs go out all the time. Yep. There's a book about the fact that back pain doesn't actually exist. It's just emotion. Really? Tell me the uh, title. I'm gonna I, give I, think it's called, I think it's called No More Back Pain. Okay. Um, <laughs> that's but, a good title. But, it's, but just this idea that all of our pain, they found that when they did like a double blind study and they had all these men come in get to get MRIs. Many of them had the exact same systemic issues that the other men had in, had in their, their vertebrae, but half of the men had no pain and half of them did. So then it's like, well, okay, well that herniated disc isn't causing this person pain. So it can't just be physiological. Right. It's the same herniated disc exists in this person and he has no symptoms. So what else is going on there? And that's where we haven't really, I don't think, gotten to in Western medicine is this understanding of so much of the root of our illnesses are our pent up, trapped, unexpressed emotions. Amen. 
And I discovered um, that the hard way when I sort of tried to barrel through the loss of my mom when she died of breast cancer. And within a year I had breast cancer. Oh Um, my God. And that was one of the greatest lessons of my life. But it also led me to when I lost Sammy, I was like, I am not going to do that again. And it's hard somatic. You can talk these things out, but it's very different than really staying in your body, feeling them, letting them move. Um, And people are so scared to do that because they feel like I'm going to be in a whirlwind of pain that's never going to end. You know, they think if they let go into that, that it's just going to carry them away. So I love that you do that too. And all of us release pain differently. But again, this is, we're talking about, we're talking about calculus and most men are in basic addition when it comes to healing. And so I wouldn't recommend somatic therapy to most men. I'd recommend just start talking about your feelings and emotions. Because I remember the first time a therapist ever asked me what emotions I was feeling, my brain gave the answer. And then I realized like, wow, I don't even have a vocabulary for the various emotions that I'm feeling because nobody, I've never had to. Nobody ever asked men how we're feeling. And that's another issue. As men, we're not asked, how are we feeling? How do we feel about that? Because honestly, nobody cares. Yeah. Or when <laughs> and that's I the ask truth. my kids, they're like, stop being a talking doctor. <laughs> but- yeah, but that's the truth. There's nobody cares because as men, we're both the oppressors and the victims. That's just the way that the world is right now. But we all have so many feelings and we have to allow ourselves to feel. But we have to first recognize and be able to verbalize what a feeling is before we can actually feel the feeling. Well, that's where it all begins. And I think it's so beautiful. I am so grateful for the work that you are doing in the world. I know it's been as much for yourself and your own journey, and you're just sharing it along the way with us. But I am very grateful for you. And I'm grateful Mm -hmm. for the kids that you and your wife are raising because they're going to be very emotionally intelligent. And, and I'm sure they will test us in all the ways we need to be tested. (laughs) There are greatest teachers always. Yes, they are. What we do. I want to just ask you one last question that I love to ask every guest that comes on. And I think you'll have a great answer, which is what would you say one of the greatest or the greatest, but it'll probably be one of the greatest lessons that you've learned that you can share about love, about how to love and be loved better. About love. Mm-hmm. Oh, what has helped you most with love and relationships? There's so many. I think that love is a choice. We have this Western idea that love happens to us, like we don't have control. Just falling in love is kind of a passive approach, when in reality, uh, that takes away, I think, our agency, and we get to choose to love. Yeah, and choose to stay in love. Which is the second piece. And I was never really one to let my dad give me advice growing up. I struggled a lot with that. But one of the things he said to me, which is one of my favorite things he's ever said, I think I wrote about it in the book, is he told me, you know, that he, him and my mom really struggled. I asked him, this was way later. And I was like, dad, why didn't you tell me this when I was 15? (laughs) But I was, I was in my twenties and I was struggling in a relationship. And he told me that there were times when he didn't know if he loved my mom and they were really on the fringes, but he woke up every day and made a choice to love her that summarizes who my dad is. Mm, And my mom did the same thing. And that's why 39 years later, they're still together. I do that every day. My husband, I think he knows, although I don't know if I've ever had this explicit conversation with him, but every morning we give each other, he's usually up before I am sitting at the table doing whatever he's doing on his computer. And I come in and he puts it away. He stands up and gives me this full body hug. And every single morning I say, I just send love from my heart into his. And I say, I choose to be with you today. I choose to love Mm. you today. I don't say it out loud, but I say it to myself because it really is a choice. I love that so much that you said that. That's beautiful. I love And it's been so helpful to me in my marriage. It's so helpful. And it doesn't mean that you stick your head in the sand when things really aren't working and that you say, I choose to love this abuser. I choose to love this toxic relationship. It's that you are choosing to stay and to invest and to love. And it can't come from fear. That's the second piece of advice is in the Baha'i faith. I'm a Baha'i, Abdu'l-Baha, 
actually Baha'u'llah says that love never dwelleth in a heart possessed by fear. Yeah. It says love is a light that never dwelleth in a heart possessed by fear. So you can't even make that choice if you're coming from a place of fear. So if you're, if you're using this other person, if I'm using another person to fill a void and I'm not full, right? that's fear. Yeah. That's fear that I'm not enough. That person's can make me, which is why then we have such codependency and we yes. can't let people go when they're, when they're hurting us and yeah. abusing us and all of these types of things. So it's like being full yourself or as full as you can be and then letting that overflow into love so that you can make the choice, but you can't make the choice on fear no. because fear is tricky. Fear can monopolize yeah. the voice in your head and, and make you think something that's not, and it's learning to distinguish and make decisions in love over fear, especially in relationships that I yeah. think is really, really important. That's a great point. And I love that. I always say you have to be your huge, beautiful, delicious cake and the other person is the icing. But I like yours even more that you're so full of love that it's like a fountain overflowing onto the other person. I think that's beautiful. And it's not always going to be that way. No. <laughs> and, 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 and in relationships that, that changes, yeah. just like the masculine and the feminine, right? But I think as a model, we just have we have to stop approaching relationships from a place of scarcity that this person will make me feel better. This yeah. person will make me because then all we're doing is we're doing the same thing we do with porn yeah, or with bullying or with anything. We're emptying, we're empty of ourselves, trying to fill ourselves up with somebody else. And that doesn't ever work or last. No, it doesn't. Thank you so much. Thank you for everything. Thank you, Laura. Thank you for spending time with me. This has been so great. And definitely pick up Man Enough. It comes out the paperback version releases. May 3rd. I'm excited. I hope you'll come back on when your children's book comes out because I'm so excited for that. Yeah, middle grade. Yeah, yeah. well, I, your your boys will have to read it. I will. I'm going to make them read it. Awesome. <laughs> I'll read thank it to Thank you them. so much, Laura. <laughs> All right. Enjoy yeah. and thank you so much for spending time with me. It was a pleasure. Around me a prescription but there's no cure for a